Nobody claims to like hatred. That's bad. Instead, everybody claims they want to love their neighbor, and that's good, right? But should the best Christian-made stories repeat these messages so that readers know we Christians are good and not bad? Or could stories with this goal end up actually harming our neighbors? Speculative fiction, like no other genre, reflects the creativity of God. If you look at the scriptures, you're going to have to see that God uses imagination more than rational discourse. We are supposed to be image bearers for a vastly creative God. Reading fantastical fiction opened a portal in my imagination for a place other than just a materialistic world. I experienced the gospel story with the mind of someone who loved adventure and loved the idea of light conquering darkness. We're wired for stories that reflect how we see the world in ways that are true. The story is either pointing to Christ or it's pointing to our need for Christ. This, again, is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm Steven Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. Not to get too gooey on you here, but in this uh, seasonal celebration of love, I just want to say I love all those people that you just heard. We love you, our listeners, and we're going to talk today more about proper love of neighbor. And I'm Zachary Russell, and one day I would love to live on a ranch in the Texas Hill Country with no other homes in sight. But for now, I live in the suburbs, so I'm asking this question for episode 201 today. How do some stories fail to help us love our neighbors? The title is a little extra clickbaity there, but that too has been made in love. I've noticed that if you put the word fail on something, it instantly generates a little bit of heat. Uh, Hopefully it's the best kind of heat here. uh, We like to be a loving, compassionate, merciful podcast that loves you, our faithful listener, as our neighbor. But given that we see lots of old and new calls for Christians, you must love your neighbor. We thought, well, how do the best kinds of stories do that? But also conversely, how do some stories fail to help us as the Christian individuals love our neighbor as we're called to do by Jesus? Yeah, I think probably no other verse in recent years has caused so much controversy as love your neighbor. It's been used in so many different ways. And today we're going to talk about how that pertains to stories that teach us to love our neighbor, but do they do it well? Do they not? How can we do it better? It's all meant in love, of course, and so is our mission update at Lorehaven this March, March the 4th, actually. You can march forth into our new book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. It is for Andrew Peterson's second Wingfeather Saga book, North or Be Eaten. Uh, A little bird told us that the second season of the Wingfeather Saga television series starts in March, so we have timed this book quest to commence at the same time. How to join the Lorehaven Guild, it is simple. Just sign up free at lorehaven.com, and then we will send you the exclusive access code to portal into the Guild, which is our Discord server, our castle in the cloud. Many, many heroes entering there. Uh, Many new ones, actually, uh, drawn by news of this book quest. We do monthly book quests into the best Christian-made fantastical stories you can find. By subscribing, you also, if you like, uh, get updates whenever we put out a new podcast episode, or last week I sent out a letter to all of our subscribers uh, with some updates. You can also sign up for the free reviews that we post every Friday and any other articles, all part of our Lorehaven purpose to love Christian fans by helping them find the best stories that they can from Christian authors. 
which also includes our top sponsor, Enclave Publishing, with their new science fiction novel, Guardian. That is book three of the Children of the Consortium series. The recorder's fate has been sealed, but the Consortium is not the only enemy. Labeled an aberration by the Consortium, the recorder is not yet free. Time is running out as an engineered bioweapon wreaks havoc on friend and foe alike. I personally hate it when that happens. Stopping both the biological agent and the people who created it is no easy task, especially since the recorder and her friends are trapped on a research station infested with behemoth insects. Without consortium technology, the probability of neutralizing the threat falls to nothing. In order to save her allies, the recorder must activate a drone, but her success might destroy any hope for freedom, a future, and a name. Enclave presents Guardian by Kathy McCrum, book three in the Children of the Consortium series. It's on sale now wherever great books are sold and also available as a digital audiobook on Audible, Spotify, and through libraries everywhere. You can see that amazing cover and learn more about Guardian by going to the show notes for episode 201 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast. Zach, I'm in no mood to feast on giant insects, but I'm nonetheless hungry. Uh, we have a big old concession stand here. Let's see if I can just binge on these concessions really quick. Possibly some leftover candy uh, from a very sweet Valentine's Day a few weeks ago. First of all, a big assumption that we make here uh, in this discussion is that our neighbors, as Christians, we know that they need beauty, goodness, and truth from great stories. Uh, this is not an option. We even talked about that in our last episode, that God has made people to not only participate in the grand redemptive narrative starring Jesus Christ himself as our hero, but we need other stories. We need culture. We need artworks and creativity that show beauty, goodness, and truth. Without that assumption, you're not going to be able to understand anything that we say in this episode, but we will need to presume these definitions as we explore stories that uh, maybe get best two out of three, but fail at the third. Uh, and as a result, they fail at all three. A short, quick definition here. You can nitpick it in the uh, comments to us at the podcast at lorehaven.com if you like. Beauty, we think about artistic excellence, craftsmanship, a reflection of God's work as our creator. Goodness, we're thinking about moral virtue, righteousness, holiness, the reflection of our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And truth, I mean, think about Bible doctrine, uh, reality as it's revealed to us by God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word of God that he gives us that is perfect and useful and practical, beauty, goodness, and truth. We do know that uh, sometimes, though, when people are critiquing stories that don't include all of these, a lot of critics do add more heat than light. And, and that certainly relates to the third example we'll talk about in chapter three. Yeah, it's the big game ad that people were talking about a few weeks ago. I saw a lot of heated critiques, a lot of dumb conspiracy theories, but I also saw a lot of good critiques. And I, I think we'll be able to maybe simplify those here. But in critiquing any of these stories directly or otherwise, I think it's important to say we don't necessarily blame their makers. I mean, nobody sets out to hate their neighbor. Very few people do. I shall hate my neighbor today. And very few storytellers or creators say, you know what? I think I'm going to make a story all about truth and goodness. But beauty, meh, who needs it? Uh, everybody thinks that they're covering all three, I think, instinctively. But if we are diverging from how God's word defines these, I think we're going to get it wrong. That's just human. That's just failing. But it also means that we have to be honest about these. In fact, however, I think with that one exception I mentioned already, uh, we may avoid specific examples on this show unless one just comes to mind. And we think, you know what? We can praise that story, but also suggest, you know, it could have been better in how it was made. Uh, creators, though, I think who make these stories, they have their own backstories. 
Uh, they have life traumas and assumptions that are built up over time that I think lead uh, Christian creators even to emphasize one of these things, truth, beauty, or goodness above the others. And I want to empathize with them. But at the same time, I think we do need to stop the cycle of sacrificing one for the sake of the two. We need to emphasize all three at once. And we need to expect these in the stories that we as Christians share with one another. More than the excellence of the stories is at stake. Our neighbor's very souls are at stake. Because if you give your neighbor something good and true, but it's not beautiful, your neighbor will conclude some things about God, especially if you say this is a Christian story. And so it is if you give your neighbor something that seems beautiful and good, but ignores truth and tells them a lie, you are ignoring one of those things in order to get two across. Uh, and as a result, the whole thing fails. And I think there's different combinations. Zach, you can probably think about something that tries to be beautiful, but doesn't care about goodness or uh, truth or, or vice versa. But I think for the sake of brevity here, we'll focus on those who try getting best two out of three. And as a result, arguably, uh, fail to reach the standard of all three at once. Yeah, I think the other paradigm here is that there's sometimes a mistaken belief that you can either be truthful or loving, but you can't do both. And Jesus was both at all at all times. He was full of grace and truth. Truth is not at odds with love. In fact, the most loving thing you can do is tell someone the truth because Jesus said the truth sets us free. Uh, now, yes, we must speak the truth in love. And sure, there's with a lot of stories, there's room to critique the methods that a story uses to deliver or embody or portray truth. Uh, but we should never fall into the trap that merely speaking biblical truth is hateful because that's the world's language. Worldly people don't want to hear truth. They, they hate the light. The scripture says in John 1, uh, they hate the light because they love darkness. And so we should never frame our storytelling uh, around that. Now, I think the other paradigm here is that when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He actually gave two: love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And also, those also have to go together. So I, I think a lot of the mistakes that get made in communication is where someone is loving God in a, in a great way, but really doesn't like the person they're talking to. And that's what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 13 you know, ha having the gift of prophecy, but not love, and you're a clinging gong. But I think the reverse can also be true. Loving your neighbor so much and empathizing with them so much that you lose track of loving God and being faithful to him. And so you're, you, it ends up causing compromise, you know, and this is where cultural engagement leads to syncretism, uh, where you adopt the idols of the audience you're trying to reach by trying to become too much like them. And so I, I think these are all things that have to be held together at all times. It's not that they're at odds with each other. It's that without the full picture and the, and the full spectrum of truth, beauty, goodness, without loving God and neighbor, without grace and truth, when you get too imbalanced is when you run into problems. I think you also run into problems uh, if you are trying to parse out these things, truth, beauty, and goodness, as if they are abstracts, something you could capture in a jar which is, of course, metaphysically impossible for any of these. And yet for the Christian, you can only look to a person who does exist, capital P, the incarnate Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man. He is the embodiment, the definition of truth, beauty, and goodness. And you do see many, many, many verses about this. You know, Christ 
living a perfect life of righteousness. You know, Christ not being especially handsome, it you know, is according to uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, but definitely exhibiting beauty in his work, uh, in his righteousness, in his truth. You know, the goodness that he showed to others. All three together define love. Uh, you can't say that. Well, love is only beauty. You know, if I had the definition of love, and I thought, okay. It's got to go over top of truth, beauty, your goodness. Like, no, it's all three of these because God himself is all three of these and God himself is love. I think that's the big problem when someone tries to define love apart from God. You're trying to create your own religion and you're trying to capture love in a jar. But for the Christian, love is a person, capital P, Jesus Christ. So ultimately, we're looking for stories that remind us of Jesus, uh, not because he uh, necessarily appears as a character in the book, but because the entire worldview, uh, the entire feeling, the ethos of the story reminds us of Jesus, because the story, if it's from a Christian, is from the Christian individual who himself or herself is a picture of Jesus Christ. That's the definition of the word Christian is Christ figure. So I always like to say, if you're picking up a Christian book uh, and you know, maybe there's something to do, uh, something great about fantasy and but Lewis included, a, you know, C.S. Lewis included a Christ figure, and the best books need to have a Christ figure. So where's the Christ figure? Is, he, is this even a Christian book? I say the Christ figure, if it's a Christian-made book, is the author, is the author. So that's why I titled it. I kind of struggled with this, actually, Zach. I wanted to say, you know, how do some stories fail to love our neighbors? Then I realized that that could fall into the trap of assuming that you could give your unsaved neighbor a Christian-made book, and then that's going to love them. That's going to get them saved. I still think the stories by Christians are mainly for Christians. That's kind of the definition I have in the back of my head. Then either way, it's a story that you are enjoying for the sake of learning maybe more about how to love your neighbor, of fleshing this out with characters, uh, whether it's in a fantasy world or a sci-fi world or otherwise, and then seeing your neighbors reflected in the characters and hopefully yourself reflected in the good heroes of the book. And then you're kind of going on this imaginative journey and simulating, okay, what's it like to love my neighbor in the world? What's it like to be like Jesus? And what it needs to be like is truth, beauty, and goodness, all three of them, just as Jesus showed them, rather than taking the virtues away from him and uh, trying to score best two out of three. If we're ready for chapter one, then uh, we're going to talk about stories that try to show goodness plus truth, but subtract beauty. This is kind of the easy one, especially if you're a young uh, Christian who grew up in an evangelical circles, for example, and you may think of many bad or shallow evangelical stories that behave like this. For example, uh, there's a stereotypical genre of evangelical filmmaking, uh, which I think one pundit very helpfully labeled the Christian social drama. And you might think of you know, Fireproof or Courageous or some of those movies that are named after virtues, not characters. Because their main point is not necessarily to show a human journey. They're trying to show people who are uh, acting out a morality play. They want characters who are struggling with bad behavior and who need to embrace good behavior. I wouldn't call these movies legalistic. Uh, they're definitely based in the gospel. They want people saved so that Jesus can start working through them and make them into better characters. But I think a lot of people react to those movies, bless their hearts nonetheless, as if they're not very beautiful. Like, I, I don't see, a lot of critics say, I don't see a lot of beauty in this. I, I don't really see something that's very well made for whatever I'm expecting to see. 
a lot of these movies too, they want to show characters extolling truth. You see people open Bibles, you see people uh, teaching John 3, 16. Uh, and so these movies and a lot of Christian made stories too, they do show goodness, they do show truth or they want to, but they're often just not very excellent. They're not made with creative excellence. And so they suffer in terms of an art form. Therefore, I think it's fair to ask whether these stories really meet the needs of our neighbors, our neighbors who need to see from Christian-made stories that Jesus is creatively excellent, that he himself is our creator, and he has made the world good. If our stories don't show that kind of intrinsic beauty in the world, then what is the point of them? You're showing goodness and truth, but not necessarily beauty. Now, I do have one example about this. It's not necessarily about a fantastical story, and it's not necessarily blaming a, a movie. It's more of a meme that I heard, uh, kind of a, a wisp of doctrine that maybe you've heard, too, from some of your very spiritual Christian friends every once in a while. Uh, I did once have a friend uh, who seemed to be getting this all wrong. He seemed to think that other evangelicals had failed to make things creatively excellent, and he was having maybe a case of what I would call the church back home syndrome, probably very valid in his case. So pray for him, if you think of him. I haven't talked to him in a very long time. But this friend thought that, uh, at least at one point, he thought, you know, Christians have failed at this whole loving your neighbor thing because we're greedy. Uh, we like our stuff. Uh, we like to have big houses and you know, maybe a vacation home, and we're all about our careers. Notice the gratuitous use of the word we there. He meant those other people. He thought, well, why don't we go back to the book of Acts where Christians sold all they have and basically engaged in communal living? And when I discussed about this and asked him some questions, I, I think because I want when people say things like that, you know, draw it out an imaginative scenario. I want examples like, OK, great. You've just engaged in a little world building there. You just outlined this imaginative scenario. Now flesh it out. What does this look like? You know. Put some muscle and put some flesh on it. You know, what does this look like? And I think ultimately in his back of his imagination, he had, you know, Christians living in some kind of, you know, block house apartments without yards, just as minimalistically as possible so that they could love their neighbors. Well, at that point, and this is why this anecdote stuck in my head, I started to wonder, wait a minute, what about all that stuff we talked about, about how our neighbors also need beauty? Uh, there is a question to be asked, okay, if we're selling all we have and living minimalistically, then what does that show about whether we value beauty? I don't mean that we need to get you know, expensive statues and crystal and all that stuff, fine uh, diamond chandeliers or whatever, but I think we do need to show, even if we're living minimalist, that we believe in beauty, uh, that we believe God is beautiful. And so that's why you see God commanding this when people are building his stuff, at least in the Old Testament. God wants things made for glory and for beauty. And similarly, Zach, uh, we actually in the uh, Lorehaven team were talking about book covers uh, not too long ago. I think a lot of people would say, well, only the story matters and you can't judge a book by its cover. But yes, you jolly well can and should judge a book by its cover. The cover does matter. How you look, in a sense, does matter because God does want excellence in the things that we make. And without this excellence uh, in beauty, our stories, I think, do cause harm to our neighbors. They are ultimately bad and even deceptive, so they're not even good or true ultimately. When they say something by what they're doing, by saying God's work is not beautiful. And so by ignoring beauty, I think these stories also ignore goodness and truth. And so in trying to get best two out of three, unfortunately, I think they end up getting zero out of three.
So I think what's often missing from these types of stories is a theology of beauty. Amen. Um, because beauty is God's idea, first of all, and it's in, uh, I would say it's an irreducible value. It's not something that can be broken down into its component atoms and restructured into some other purpose. I, I think a lot of this really goes to the modern impulse to make everything utilitarian to basically just the driver of pragmatism. Like, well, how does this help me do X? How does this accomplish Y? And I think we have to look at scripture to see where God comes up with the idea of beauty in the first place. So he makes creation, right? He spends six days making creation and he says, and it was good and it was good and it was good over and over. You know, when we, when we go outside, when we look at a forest or a river or a sunset or the stars, it's beautiful. And, and that's, that's its own purpose. Like creation has its own role of being beautiful and it's not a thing you, you strip down and use for something else. You know, you look at Genesis three, when Eve was studying the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says that she saw that it, it had fruit that was good and it was pleasing to look at. Now we, we're not going to go in everything with Genesis three, but God made his creation pleasing to look at. Um, you know, when he gave directions to Bezalel to make the tabernacle, so much of what Bezalel was commanded to make were things that were just beautiful. There wasn't like a specific, you know, purpose to them other than it was pleasing to look at these things. And so I, I think this is where sometimes modern Christian storytellers need to just slow down a little bit and look at how God sees beauty. He sees it as a good thing that directly points to him. I, I think the challenge is people look at art, they look at stories or music as a vehicle primarily for truth. And, and they don't trust that beauty itself can point people to God. We think that we have to use this art form to tell something about God. But art is meant to show something, and it, and it's meant to help someone experience a thing that's even hard to put into words sometimes. Like, you know, Stephen, have you ever looked at a painting and you're like, it just makes you feel something, or you listen to music and there's this deep longing or this deep sense of peace or some other experience that you have and you can't even express it, but that longing or that sense of peace, that sense of holiness or worship you know, that in and of itself, it, it's an intangible and it's an inexpressible thing. And maybe that's where we get a little uncomfortable sometimes because it, maybe that feels too woo woo. <laughs> maybe it feels too, way too right brained or way too abstract, but we have to trust that God has a purpose for that, that he created all those things. He created those sensations. He created aesthetics, you know, and that in and of themselves are good. If you want to look at a whole other extreme, you look at total, uh, totalitarian societies, you look at dystopian stories, what do you notice? Everything's really ugly. You know, I have, Stephen, I have been to some really ugly parts of the world. And when I say ugly, I mean, it, it's an ugly system that's like really repressing people. And one of the ways these evil systems repress people is by forcing them to live in squalor. Like, gray concrete, you know, open sewage, just horrible organizational systems that treat people like cattle, 
you know, there, there's no beauty to it. And it's because these repressive systems don't have any value of beauty. They, they just think, well, what, what does it matter? Because they don't think people have a soul. And that's what beauty speaks to. It speaks to our soul. There's some kind of Christians, Zach, I, th- I think you rightfully said, yeah, that uh, this may make people feel that all this talk about beauty is woo-woo or even, dare I say, effeminate. Beauty just means creatively excellent. So if you want to say the word excellent and feel more like a man, then maybe that will Bill help and you. Ted. Excellent. Well, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Party on, dudes. But uh, I've actually never seen the movie. That's uh, Wayne's seen, World, but that's okay. Once again, yeah, that's, well, aren't they the same movie? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> now, remember, just a, a standing policy at the podcast. Zach is the cool guy who's seen all the cool 80s and 90s movies, and I have not. Steve, Steve is the Christian. Yeah. It's my yeah. lifetime <laughs> Either that or just over shelter. Um, <laughs> beauty is something that makes us people, I'll just say people, not men, because I'm not going to stereotype, but I think it does kind of throw some people off kilter. And Zach, you mentioned the left brain, right brain, you know, mythology. I, I think it's been scientifically discredited, but it's still a, a great way to imagine, you know, people who have certain gifts in like math or engineering or things you can touch and calculations you can make. Versus people who are a little more artsy-fartsy and uh, a little more subjective in how they, they view the world. Either one of those, though, is called to a full presentation of God as truth, goodness, and beauty. And uh, there are some Christian leaders and, uh, you know, doctrine wonks, Calvinists. Now, not just Calvinists, but, you know, and I can say that with diplomatic immunity, by the way. Uh, but there are some Christians who, who, who like the order uh, and, 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 and the perfection of Scripture. And, and they think that they're not really into the whole beauty part of it. Well, maybe that's liberal theology, or maybe that's more like some stereotypical fluffy devotional that doesn't really delve into the seriousness of the intricacy of God. Well, I can then argue on their own terms that the scripture itself demonstrates beauty, not just in what it teaches, but how it teaches it. You cannot exegete the word faithfully without attention to how the text is put together, without attention to genre and continuity and place in history. Genesis 1, for example, doesn't just describe how God created the world or, or describe that he did it, that is. It does so with beauty to such an extent that it gives rise to the myth that it's only poetry and not literal history. And I say, why can't literal history also be poetic? That's not just a Lewis argument of the true myth. It's simply an argument that poetry can describe literal events. Uh, It takes a very small mind to say, well, it's obviously not literal. It could be literal, an actual literal six-day period that is described in poetic terms. Why can't actual history be poetic? And then even the rest of the scripture, you know, the, the bouncing back and forth between history and poetry and Jesus' parables and allegory and all of this stuff by design, by the author's design throughout all these books of the Bible, this illustrates beauty as well as teaching beauty. So even someone who thinks they're left-brained and uh, really all more about the doctrine than all of this uh, effeminate feeling stuff, go back to the Bible and actually read it, and you will find that there is something to the artsy-fartsy's people's claim that God is not just truth and goodness, but it must also be beauty. And Exodus 28, as you said, Zach Bezalel is commanded to make objects for glory and for beauty. God wanted to tell the Old Testament people, hey, I am artistically excellent. Uh, Any of the gold that you're pouring into the basins and all of this, like it needs to say something to the people. It needs to say something about 
the past beauty of creation. And I think too, even uh, hearkening to the future of creation, all the gold and all the fine minerals and all of this are present in Revelation 21 through 22, describing the new Jerusalem. So all these precious metals say something about God. And what they say about God is God is beautiful. Yeah. I, but by the way, I think Bizzle is Exodus 31, but what, what's Exodus 28 about? I'm trying to remember. I think hand. Exodus 28 is where he is commanded to build the tabernacle. Let me pull it oh, up Oh, it's here. where he's the first priest, commanded the priestly, to it, Oh, yeah. you're right. Bezalel, that's right. The priestly garments, though, you're right. Oh, Good okay. catch there, are made for glory and for beauty. Uh, and I would need to go a little bit further into the verse here. Yeah, but that's that's a good point too. That not just the tabernacle, but how they were meant to dress. You know, it wasn't just bland, you know, potato sacks <laughs> that they were supposed to wear. They had these very intricate garments with precious stones and everything worked into them. So even that is kind of an interesting testimony that God wanted His priests to have these very interesting and shiny and beautiful things. Now, here's where I I think this does break down for us, though. Yeah, Stephen, and I'm glad you brought up this passage in that verse. Yeah, it's Exodus uh, 28:40. By the way, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. Okay, so here's where I think we run into trouble and why we view beauty with suspicion. It's because we've all seen the prosperity gospel preachers who take a verse like that from Exodus 28 and get extremely expensive clothes. There, I think there's even an Instagram account called Preachers with Sneakers or something like that's, that. That's, that's like the $600 shoes, or maybe yeah. I'm uh, lowballing it there. But yes, that's true. Good point. Outfits that cost thousands of dollars, not to mention you know everything else. that. Bro, I'm lucky opulence. if I get $60 shoes. That's, <laughs> right. I guess I'm the one living minimalistically then to love my neighbor. So props yeah. to me. Uh, you know, we... Christians from our generation, we think of things like the Crystal Cathedral in uh, California. We, uh, we look, the old Robert Schuller shtick. Yeah, we look at these uh, uh, European cathedrals that are extremely beautiful, but empty. There, there's no worship happening there. They're just tourist destinations. And so I, I think that we look at beauty with sort of this, eh, it's just kind of vanity or we, or we think of beauty as well. It, it's just lust, basically. It's, it's just some kind of lust, uh, and especially when you get humans involved. And we look at the beauty industry that's uh, very fake and artificial. And you know, why not just go natural? And and why do you need all these makeup products? And so I, I think it's, <laughs> I don't know exactly what that is, but it's almost like the excesses of beauty, or it's the lack of other things. And that's what we'll talk about in a minute. But it's where beauty becomes sort of supreme, and there, there's no other thing. So that's probably a good transition there to go to our next chapter. Excellent, but not without stopping by sponsor to author David Liberto, who, by the way, I must say about his cover, that is one beautiful cover. So you'll want to go to the show notes for episode 201 or lorehaven.com slash podcast to see it. David Liberto has written a fantasy novel called Return of the Lost Ones, in which two young men, two legendary families one infamous and one noble, their faithful choices converge in a tale of adventure and peril. As Paul, born to a line of blessed heroes, strives to reclaim his family's honor, Stefan faces a crossroads that could lead to ruin or redemption. Together, they must unite to save a village from the grip of darkness and creatures of myth. Will they rise to the challenge or be consumed by the legacies that haunt them? Discover their stories in the thrilling first book where honor, bravery, and legends collide Begin your journey with Paul and Stefan 
where every decision shapes destiny. That is Return of the Lost Ones, a fantasy novel from author David Liberto. As I said, show notes, episode 201 or lorehaven.com slash podcast. Chapter two now, let's talk about stories that try to show beauty and truth, but not goodness. So chapter one was showing goodness and truth and not beauty. But Zach, you've already hit on it. Uh, stories or anything made in culture that tries to show be- beauty and truth, but not goodness. And here's what I mean by that. And I'm glad you brought up the cathedrals because that's the first thing that came to mind when I was uh, writing the original notes for this. I think that a lot of people struggle uh, with Christian made stuff that seems to ignore goodness. And one big example that could be an episode all on its own is the idea of a church, an organization of people that proclaims the words. So that's the truth. You know, it's put together pretty well and maybe runs pretty well. So that's the beauty. But they ignore goodness. There's hypocrisy in there. There's something worse going on. You know, there's exploitation of labor. Like the thing has been made with a lot of badness baked into it. Uh, But people think that it's okay to do that because after all, truth and beauty matter more than goodness. And uh, I think that that fails to show love for other people because you're trying to strive for best two out of three. And as a result, you end up failing all three. Uh, among Christian-made fantastical novels or just any kind of fiction, uh, I would say that that's about questions about bad artist behavior that you don't see, even though the final product of the book may look beautiful uh, and it may even have some truth in it. Uh, But the journey to making it was not just rough, as all creative journeys would be, but actually involved badness. There were bad decisions made, and you can talk about ethical considerations like uh, ghostwriting or even some AI like we've been debating this week, uh, Zach and I. I would conclude, by the way, uh, that uh, it, it is worth discussing, for example, like Zach and I were talking about book covers not too long ago and whether or not you know a book cover should be entirely generated or just maybe uh, accented by uh, AI in the design process. And uh, I'm, I'm still trying to sort out how I think about this. But I think my main thought is that, you know, if it's a good AI that was made, like, you know, if an artist, if a human artist used it as a tool, as we know that some books, even in the Lorehaven library and some books we've reviewed, do include some AI elements in the cover as a design choice, then I'm open to that, at least on principle there. But a cover that's generated entirely by AI, like at least at this stage in the software, like those covers just leap out to me as not beautiful. So it kind of falls afoul of what we talked about in chapter one. But the biggest issue there is the one that uh, artists and others are still talking about is this idea that the AI software has been trained on unwitting artist participants who did not give permission for their works to be used this way. And so at least one can make a case, you know, even if the results look good and look true, they were made with badness going on behind the scenes or at least uh, possible badness going on behind the scenes. So that's a question that we need to be asking going forward about this. But Zach mentioned the cathedrals, and that's a big example here is that, yes, the cathedrals look wonderful. And irrespective of whether or not truth was proclaimed there or is proclaimed there today, they look magnificent. And, and I think it's good that they do. I don't want to burn down any cathedrals. In fact, I want to take them all over in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, and uh, Jesus Christ himself can redeem uh, some of the uh, exploitive practices that were made, you know, bad taxes and, you know, maybe even some racism or something going on, some classism uh, that was made to put together the cathedral. That's bad. And so you may get beauty and truth, but badness in the construction. 
And back in a book, I think even a book may look amazing and reflect biblical orthodoxy. But apart from all the AI stuff or the production uh, process, if the author does not act like a faithful Christian, if the author is a bad person to the people around him or his creative colleagues, well, now you've got a book that may be beautiful and true, but has some badness baked into it. And worse than hypocrisy, I think that story's author is failing to act like Jesus Christ. The story's author and therefore the story itself, especially if the neighbors find out, uh, the story reflects a lack of goodness and thus inactively harms our neighbors. And so ultimately these stories, as I like to say, they fail on the other two. They may try to be beautiful and truthful, but ultimately they are ugly and even deceptive because they are saying in terms of how they were made or how the author behaves, God is not actually good. And so by ignoring goodness, these stories also ignore beauty and truth. And so ultimately they fail to help our neighbors fail to love our neighbors. Yeah. I want to look at this chapter from two directions. One, like you're saying how the story is made, but I also want to look at the story itself and what it teaches. So firstly, how the story is made, you mentioned exploitative labor, man, this is a really common practice in the whole film industry. And there's a variation of it within the Christian film community. Oh, I want to hear about this part. <laughs> yeah. So there is an ongoing problem with films of, of with all sizes, not just indie films, not just big Hollywood films, where actors are put into danger. They film something on a railroad track, for example, or a bridge or in inclement weather on a busy street and they don't get the right permits and they don't get the right, you know, stunt doubles or whatever kind of support they need to keep actors safe. And, and same with the film crew. <laughs> There's often a lot of corners that are cut with film crews and, and you know, there's cameramen and, and such that are uh, doing the best they can and, and being creative with, with very few resources, but there's a whole website. I, I can't actually say the name of it because it's a bad word and it shows like, you know, cameras duct taped to the ceiling or lights being hung up, hung up with like literal shoestrings that could burn through the shoestrings. And there's all kinds of practices like this where people are trying to cut corners and they might make something that looks beautiful. And hey, if it's a Christian film, it might even proclaim the truth. Problem is, a lot of actors get really burned out from this. And a lot of you know cinematographers get burned out. There's plenty of films where people are willing to work for free. It's their first time acting, their first time being a production assistant, whatever. The problem is when that's not upfront. That is a real common problem where, where people say, oh, well, pay you an exposure, for example. Uh, but they don't really say that you're not being paid in money. And look, if people want to volunteer, that's, that's fine. But it's when there's sort of some deceptiveness that goes on. I think in the, the Christian world where this also gets dicey is it's like, oh, look what you could do for the kingdom, but we're not going to pay you. <laughs> and again, if people want to volunteer, that's fine. There just has to be honesty and integrity about that so that people don't feel like they were just used and, and spit out and dehumanized and much less abused. So that's how stories are made. But let's talk about what the story teaches. You know, th this is what I've been struggling with, Stephen. Can a story with truth and even beauty lead people to bad behavior? That's kind of what I'm wondering. And I, and I, think I've, I think this is how. I think when the truth has no love with it. This could be a story about a family and that basically leads people to become harsh parents or it leads children to want to leave home and think, oh, what do my parents know? 
Or it's a story about, it's like the, the stupid husband trope, like the Homer Simpson type character. Well, that may be true. And you may be able to make a funny or interesting story about the stupid husband trope, but that's not really good. That, that's not teaching the goodness of family. It may just be focusing way too much on the sins of certain people, but it's not teaching you that God's design for marriage or parenting is a good thing. I just realized that C.S. Lewis and his description of his own creative process for the Chronicles of Narnia very roughly described possibly truth, beauty, and goodness in his creative process. And I, I didn't have this in the notes, so I may uh, gum this up. But just to review, Lewis said, no, he didn't set out uh, with some sort of committee-made goal of saying something about Christianity to children. Lewis said, I first had a bunch of raw unowned images uh the the lion and for example and uh, and the fawn with the uh, parcels in a snowy wood lewis said this was the bubbling these were unsorted completely disorganized images and i didn't know what to do with them so each one of those images is beautiful but lewis then says well i had to give them form i had to give them a shape and so you could say then uh, that uh, truth comes in here or goodness uh, again i haven't put this together i'm throwing it together on the fly but Lewis then gives form to these images and he decides, okay, I'm going to sort these into a particular genre and type of story that we'll call the fairy tale. You know, it's short, it's quick, uh, it's simple, like there is beauty and truth in the, in the simplicity. And then Lewis then does come to the goal of thinking, you know, there is a purpose to this though. I do want to bring truth to children. I want to bring them the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel by stripping all these truths of their Sunday school stained glass associations and therefore sneak past the watchful dragons of the soul. So you could call that truth or goodness. Uh, maybe it is truth and goodness is in the form if I'm to try to press the analogy here. But the point there is that uh, Lewis is trying all three. He doesn't just go out, you know, like the, uh, the artsy fartsy type and say, uh, I want to show something beautiful to the world without form or purpose. Uh, he starts with the beauty, then moves to the form, and then moves to the purpose. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, stories do need to teach, in a sense. And that doesn't mean that the story is teaching a sermon, but there are many different ways you teach. I think a story teaches more like a good parent, or more like a good coach, or, or a good teacher outside of the classroom. A, a good story can be a mentor, and the teaching is done mainly by example and not by a didactic giving of a lesson. Yeah, and I, I think this one is the harder one to identify sometimes because it's easy to ignore what goes on behind the scenes. You know, it, it's easy just to be, you know, blissfully ignorant about how a story is made, how a movie is made. You know, I personally wrestle with this because I don't like to look on the DVD special features, but no one has DVDs anymore, but I don't like to listen to the uh, director's commentary or behind the scenes things. I just like to enjoy the story. You know, there was a time where I used to like to watch, Oh, how did the magician do that trick or whatever? And then I just got to the point of, you know, I, I just like to enjoy the magic trick. I, I don't really care how they did it. So I don't really care how they made this movie because I'm afraid of what I'll find. There's a situation I'm dealing with now, Stephen, that you, it's a very personal thing where someone I really looked up to as a, an amazing artist who, who spoke truth was not a good person, as it turns out, doing a lot of things behind the scenes that were very harmful. And so now, how do I process the art this person made? There's still goodness to it, I guess, but, but there's not goodness to the process of making that art when it harmed a lot of people because of 
well, private behavior, but it was behavior connected to the art making. So that's what gets so hard about this. I mean, we've all seen celebrity scandals, musician scandals, where we're like, do we still enjoy that album? Do we, can we still enjoy that movie or that book when we know who this person really was? You know, the, the Bill Cosby thing is probably the biggest example that are, yeah, I was know, I just thinking up, of that too. I grew up with Michael Jackson and I just, I can't go back to those now. Naomi and I have talked about this a lot because she loves the Cosby show. The Cosby show is this very idyllic family and, and it's something that resonates with, with the deep longing both of us have. It's, it's hard for me to go back to that. Just knowing what I know, knowing what was happening when the cameras were turned off, th- this is where goodness really has to be a part of it or the art can't endure. I agree. And it leads to some very difficult situations, which we unfortunately can't resolve here. But wow, that's another spinoff topic I think we need to have at some point with particular attention to Christian uh, artists and Christian creators. What do we do with their stuff uh, when they're caught like this? I don't know, Zach, it feels like we've already done this episode, but uh, if so, I might put that in the show notes. A quick point of application here uh, is, is simply this. Look for stories that do value biblical goodness, not just beauty and truth, uh, but whose authors, uh, by and large, follow the Savior. Uh, obviously not perfectly, but that's why we have a process of reconciliation. You know, if an author uh, fails in some way, as we all will, uh, then it's perfectly fine, I think, for them, uh, optimally in a local church environment, you know, where they're accountable to other other believers, uh, to then you know confess that sin to one another and grow and keep growing. Like it matters to us at Lorehaven, for example, as we get to know various authors and creators and publishers. Like if they're speaking openly about being members of a local church and participating in the normal boring local church stuff like Sunday school or stacking up the chairs after youth group, like that means something to us. That means that that person is not just to pursuing truth and beauty in their craft, uh, but is actively seeking to be good. That is actively seeking to be like Christ in their local church. So we want to hear about those stories from folks. Uh, it helps us to build trust uh, with those folks. And uh, several of us at Lorehaven even have our local church membership in our bios at the site. And That's something I think is extremely important as we cultivate all three of these virtues at once. And Zach, you mentioned too, just the content of the story. It needs to, in a sense, illustrate goodness in the story. You can't have characters who are behaving badly all the time and then only ever getting rewarded for it. The themes of the story itself need to show, in a sense, rewards for goodness and punishment for evil. Uh, And then just in terms of looking to the author's life, Zach, you mentioned how the author uh, or the story itself needs to illustrate 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous chapter on love that I guess everybody gets out of Valentine's Day, but is applicable to the Christian's life uh, all year round. Uh, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels, basically have superpowers to communicate, uh, but without love, it says, without those uh, virtues being illustrated in your life, uh, you're nothing but this loud, gross, annoying gong or clanging cymbal that doesn't even have any rhythm to it. The Apostle Paul says, okay, instead of that, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then you get the stuff that's uh, printed on your you know, dish towels at your grandma's house. Love is patient, love is kind, and all of that. That's the kind of thing we want to feel in a story, even if the story doesn't pause to show you grandma's dish towel and then preach it at you. Uh, the story needs to illustrate that, needs to show it uh, rather than just talking about it. I think that you, a faithful listener, may want to help write stories like that. There's a chance. There's a chance you might. Or maybe you just want to meet your favorite Christian author of fantasy or sci-fi. Chances are he or she will be appearing at the 12th Annual Realm Makers Conference for 2024. 
Since 2013, Realm Makers has been helping writers of fantasy, science fiction, and other fantastical stories find their community and learn their craft from an all-star faculty. Now the Christian-led organization will return to St. Louis, Missouri for its 12th annual live conference this July 18th through 20th. Public registration opened February 1st at realmmakers.com. Authors can attend in person, staying at the Sheraton Westport Chalet Hotel for the three-day event, or they can attend the event remotely on the dedicated RealmSphere social network. At RealmMakers, we've been connecting Christian creators for over a decade, said marketing director J.J. Johnson. Our annual conference provides a supportive space where authors can take their next creative steps. RealmMakers is where authors find not just inspiration, but lasting relationships that fuel their success. Of course, you can learn more at realmmakers.com or see our big press release about that in our show notes for episode 201 or at lorehaven.com slash podcast. And a note for those who are readers and not just writers, uh, there is a Realm Makers book festival every Saturday evening at the end of the conference, and everyone's welcome. You don't have to pay. You don't have to sign up for writing classes or anything. Just bring your sweet uh, fan self, bring the kids, bring the spouse, bring your relatives, uh, come meet some amazing authors. And of course, Lorehaven will be there as well. Uh, in the vendor hall uh, to meet folks who listen to Fantastical Truth and uh, showcase our mission, which includes chapter three, busting up or at least uh, gently challenging the stories or creative works by well-meaning Christians that seem to try to show us beauty and goodness, but leave out the truth. This is the part where we get to talk about the big game ad. Now that everyone else has stopped talking about it and we moved on to the next controversy. Now let's talk a little bit more about that infamous ad uh, aired during the American um, Stupor Brawl, uh, Superb Owl, uh, whatever our copyright evasion tactic is here. If you haven't seen the ad, we may put a link in the show notes. I wasn't a fan of the ad. I uh, just want to make that clear right up front. Uh, and and I would want to be a fan of the ad, though. You know, and I don't go at it with conspiracies or hatred or any of that stuff because I don't teach hate either. Like the people that the ad seemed to critique because the ad showed these um, pictures looked a little like a, a Mormon devotional art, frankly. Uh, Zach, I wonder what uh, images the AI generator was training on, but I think it was all from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Jehovah's Witnesses because it looked like very religious art. Uh, either that or that guy who shows like Jesus, you know, with his hand held up and his face glowing, reading or restoring the American Constitution, showed these pictures, played this kind of uh, evangelicalish pop song in the background, and then it ended with doom, 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 the words on screen. Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. And all the pictures are showing like people washing other people's feet that, uh, that, that you wouldn't expect to be washing people's feet, you know natural enemies uh, like the wolf and the sheepdog you know clocking out after work and then they clock back in and they go to their jobs doing the uh, you know the wolf trying to steal the sheep and the sheepdog trying to uh, trying to defend them and, and then they break for lunch and you know they hang out by the tree and puff their cigars and then they go back to work but instead they're washing each other's feet and wow uh mind blown here jesus didn't teach hate he washed feet I'm being a little sarcastic. I knew I was going to be a little sarcastic. Before I proceed, Zach, did you see this ad? You watched the big game. I must confess I didn't because I did legitimately have other places to be. But did you see this when it aired or were you out of the room getting popcorn? I don't remember if I saw it live, but I watched it that day. And I, I've seen you know everyone talk about it online. And I, I'm honestly still trying to make sense of it because I, I don't exactly know the intent of the storyteller. I'm like, are are you saying this to people that think Jesus taught hate or 
are you saying this to other Christians who you're accusing of being hateful? Like, who is the audience? What is the message? The whole thing was honestly really unclear to me. I have my opinion about what I think they were trying to do. And, and well, I, I guess I have different opinions. They range from the more charitable to the more cynical. I just think the the message didn't really land. And and again, I, I think ultimately it was very one-sided and, and basically partisan. So I, I don't even know if it it had goodness in it. I, I think it it tried, and I don't even know if it had beauty, honestly. Like you said it came. Well, I'm gonna get it was to that. Made yeah. with, uh, AI images that look like and you know, look, and and there's the whole criticism of well, they spent you know six million dollars to put this in the Super Bowl, and this money could, could this could have been sold in the money given to the poor, to the poor, right? Which is a, <laughs> that's that's a really funny objection I saw there. a little a little bit ironically, especially <laughs> considering the the original foot washing narrative, which we're gonna get to. I didn't see the ad live. I saw I saw it afterwards, like after I'd already seen all the criticism. And I must say, faithful listener, that when I hear a bunch of Christians piling onto something, I must say my instinct is to defend it especially if it is a Christian-made thing. And I know that, you know, I don't mean we evangelicals. I just mean like some evangelicals don't get art. Uh, But it means uh, a lot uh, for what you said, Zach, because your day job involves making videos for an evangelistic nonprofit. So this is your territory. Uh, You are a professional in this field. And so for you to say, what the heck was this about? What was the audience? I don't get it. I still don't get it. That means a lot uh, coming from you, and it ought to mean a lot to uh, you all out there in our listening audience. Um, I agree with you, Zach. I really question why they couldn't just film these scenes or even just take photographs of real people because they weren't, as far as I can tell, these were not real photographs. Get Instagram, do it, do it. Here's the thing. (laughs) Now, this this matters, right? Because if I'm going to critique a thing, then to be honest, for it to be an honest critique, I need to think of a better way to do it, like even on their own terms. And I do question their own terms. But if your goal is to show Christians doing nice things for their neighbors, unlike whoever out there says that Jesus taught hate, and you want to show the contrast, then show an Instagram video, like show, show a TikTok, like show, show YouTube. Better yet, do this all throughout the year so that you can get some buzz going. And then show the results at the Super Bowl, see our ad at the big game. And then you actually show Christians who ought to be natural enemies of so-and-so doing this for others. Uh, show a Christian who somehow got to a politician you hate and you're, and you're washing the politician's feet. Uh, show the Christian at the abortion clinic washing someone's feet. You know, show the Christian at the circus or the strip club or whatever washing someone's feet. But of course, <laughs> you start to see the logic of that breakdown how are you going to do that in real life? Could this actually work in real life? Well, they couldn't even do it for a YouTube stunt. They had to resort to, quote, paintings, unquote, of an idyllic world where this happened. So yeah. they couldn't do it in real life, meaning what's the point of the ad? Like, do you actually want to show this in real life? Because Jesus did say to his disciples that he wants them to do this for one another. So in theory, you could try to uh, export that and, you know, twist that into, well, Christians are supposed to do this just for everybody generally. Yeah. But if they couldn't even do it for a Super Bowl commercial on a low budget or a high budget or whatever, then is this even feasible? Is this even realistic? Is it yeah. even truthful that way? Well, so let, let's talk about one aspect of it that wasn't truthful and it really wasn't good, which was trying to contrast a person washing the feet of a young woman or pregnant or, or anyway, yeah, I don't know if it was a mother or someone that just had an abortion 
in in front of the abortion clinic. I don't think the AI image generator knew enough to portray that <laughs> with clarity. And then in the background, you see these you know angry pro life protesters. So it's like, okay, so you're trying to contrast that. So so the message here seems to say that you shouldn't protest abortion. You should just wash the feet of someone who's wanting to have an abortion or just had one. And so so that you just play that out for a second, okay? So so what is what is the end goal? Is the end goal just to teach someone that they're beautiful or that they're accepted or that you are enough? You know, th- those kind of wishy-washy messages. Is it to say that Jesus saves them even from that sin? Well, okay, that would be a good message. Or is it to say that there are better approaches to dealing with abortion clinics? Well, that would be a fair debate if it was actually showing real pro-life sidewalk counselors who most of the time are not these angry, you know, picket, you know, sign waving people. They are actually very compassionate people. And it's also not showing the truth that a lot of pro-life sidewalk counselors are being arrested in our country, in other Western countries, sometimes simply for praying silently. This has happened in England, sometimes just for singing hymns in, inside the building or near the building. This has happened very recently, sometimes from defending their children from angry pro-choice activists and being arrested by the DOJ in the middle of the night. You know, there, this isn't being truthful about what's actually happening and who the angry and hateful people really are in a lot of these situations. And, and, and I would just say, have you talked to any pro-life uh, activists, which, okay, I'm not a pro-life activist. I don't really know either, but, but that's where the message was totally missing truth because it was painting this picture from a 30,000 foot view of what they thought pro-life counselors were like. Here's what I'm guessing was the logic for that, to the extent that there may have been logic for that, is a a ministry philosophy that you alluded earlier called pragmatism, or maybe a streak of this seeker-friendly idea. And it seemed to be this idea that uh, we need to go out and poll our non-Christian neighbors and ask them, what is your impression of Jesus? What is your impression of Christians? And then based on the results of that poll, you make an ad purporting to answer those claims. It seemed to be that they'd gotten a hold of some research or, you know, anecdotal evidence or whatever. You know, a whole lot of people just think that Christians teach hate. And so if you're an honest fool, and I will say that there's at least some honest fools in the process of this, just based on what I see, you go back to your nonprofit office or whatever, and you say, you know, okay, so a lot of people think that Christians uh, teach hate. We need to answer this. We've got these resources. We need to answer this. We need to show Christians behaving in a way that the world will find beautiful. We're going to need to show Christians behaving in a way that the world will find good. Well, we can ask the question, like, why are we basing what we do on the world's definition of beauty and goodness, which is going to be distorted not only by sin, but by tragic backstories, by thorns and thistles and grief and trauma. And oh, by the way, lies spread by Christians in the media. Uh, why are we basing everything we do on, on what people say in a poll, assuming that they did do a poll? I haven't looked into it that far. I just know that Christians historically have done this before when they're trying to start a big church out in the burbs, you know, the seeker-friendly movement and the pragmatism. And so there's good motives here. I think the people here want to introduce people to Jesus, and that seems to be the goal. 
Oh, but oh, if you go to the website, though, for this group, uh, you actually see that there are non-Christians involved in making this. Non-Christians who really respect Jesus and the moral message he brought, uh, but they don't believe he's the Son of God. Well, then you are actually a heretic. You don't need to be working with Christians on an evangelistic effort. Uh, that's going to be extremely flawed at best. And I think the main problem here is that the central claim, the, the only time they put words up on the screen, with the exception of their website, is Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. Well, the first part is vulnerable to misunderstanding. A lot of people would think if they actually read what Jesus taught, yes, he did teach hate. He taught a lot of things that feel like hatred to people if they closely look into it. Uh, but that last three words, he washed feet, that is a lie. That's not just telling a partial story. That's not just a little hint of the story. That is an active lie to people. And so that's why I group it under a story that tries to show beauty and goodness, but rejects truth. Okay, clarify what you mean about that, because he did wash people's feet. So why was it a lie? People's feet? Okay, what did we just see? We saw the good kinds of Christians washing the feet of the objectionables, the outcasts, the social uh, underprivileged. Uh, That's the feet we've just seen being washed. So Jesus washed feet. That is a lie. You might be very generous and call it a lie of omission, but it is a lie when you go to John chapter 13. And I wish I had time to read all of verses 1 through 20, but go read those. Pause the podcast. Pull up your audio Bible. Go read them. Then come back. I'll wait. Tapping my foot. I'll wait. Okay. You've just read it. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Oh, well, that's the little, uh, you know, insertion there. Uh, that's not part of the text, at least in the ESV at the top of chapter 13. That's a bit of a clue there. Whose feet did Jesus wash? Uh, did he go out and have them line up from the highways and byways and wash the feet of the general public? No. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So if you're looking for love here, this is the kind of love that Jesus is showing. In this context, he's not just healing the sick and general public or teaching to them. He is shown loving his own who were in the world. And by the way, 12 chapters of the Apostle of John, we've gotten Jesus making this separation of those whom he has called out of the world but are sent back into the world to love their neighbors and those who are of the world. You even get that in John 1, you alluded to, uh, Zach, that uh, Jesus is full of grace and truth, and he was in the world, but he was not of the world and all of this. And so Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and then he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. That's when he pours water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet. The disciples get really awkward about this, by the way, uh, just as any normal person did if this organization had tried to do this uh, in real life uh, for their ad instead of making their pretty pictures about it. Peter refuses. He knows that this is Jesus, uh, his uh, rabbi, his spiritual sensei, doing something his servants are supposed to do. But then Jesus starts explaining, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So that's where the contrast becomes even, even more evident. It's not just that Christians are supposed to do something nice for the general public to show love or to show that they're not hateful. It's that Jesus has to do this. And if he doesn't ritually clean or actually clean uh, his apostles spiritually in the way that he's physically cleaning them, then they have no part with him. They will not live for eternity. They will not be saved. They will not be clean. And there's all kinds of Old Testament ideas here about ritual cleanliness and whether or not you're in or out of the camp. Like 
And the only exception here, of course, is Judas. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But Ju- Jesus makes a disclaimer about Judas. He says, one of you is not clean. Yep, I recognize that. You know, So the foot washing there for Judas, the enemy, uh, is a sign of judgment. Uh, it's not just a sign of him loving his enemy and being nice to him. It's actually judgment, just as much as him doing it for the disciples is a sign of uh, blessing. Okay, so I just realized what the ad actually got wrong is that what they really were thinking, I, well, I'm, I'm mind reading here, but I think what they were trying to invoke was Jesus ate with sinners. And, and this is what the Pharisees hated. Like, why? Oh, that would have fixed the eating? ad, though. Yeah. That would have fixed the ad. Well, it Almost. would if there was courage. And this is what I mean. Oh, to say right. that Jesus ate with sinners is to say that people need to repent of their sin. What are the sins that we're implicitly being told about here? Go by, going back to the pro-life protesters, the sin, yes, of abortion. This ad did not want to call abortionists to repent. It did not want to call women who've got abortions to repent. And it would have been so much more powerful to show Jesus walking away from the, or a Christian or whatever, walking away from the clinic, holding someone's hand and saying like, you know, Jesus can still forgive you. And uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but there was a really good response ad made to this by Jamie Bambrick, which we built it in a cave with a box of scraps. (laughs) (laughs) And it was kind of like these before after stories of people, you know, someone that was formerly into witchcraft, someone that was uh, formerly in the KKK, someone that was a former jihadist, someone that was a former abortionist. And so this ad very clearly showed how people repented of their sin. And that's what I think that he gets this ad was not willing to say. I think that's why they, they went the foot washing route, because that's a little less offensive to say that Jesus ate with sinners. Because then now people are going to say, what, are you calling oh, me a sinner? Which is, in the view of a lot of people, teaching hate. But I mean, yeah. even a mainline Protestant back in, back in the day or, or an emergent church guru in the mid-2000s would have emphasized, you know, Jesus ate with sinners. Unlike you bad Christians who are just so holier than now, who cross to the other side of the road and won't help the Good Samaritan. Well, but that still implies that the Good Samaritan needs help or that the sinners ought not be right. et with, but Jesus et with them anyhow. Because we, we are in the age of the spirit of you are enough, just the way you are. You don't need to change. You know, or you are fine. enough. Yeah. And <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's where... And, and there's a, look, there's a good message you could say there of Jesus ate with sinners. Stop just throwing stones at people. Go meet people. Look, I, I'm in the business of missionary work. I, I totally get that. You have to get close to people. You have to get comfortable with people who are very different and, and weird. And you know what? You're weird too. You have to get in there and build relationships and at least be willing to talk to people. Okay. There's a message there. But the gospel is also about calling people to repentance. And this is what Joe Rigney for World Opinions uh, riffed on a little bit of saying, look, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, stood up to a crowd of his fellow Jews, he, he explained who he was before he met Christ. He explained how Christ changed him. And then he talked about how Christ has sent me to the Gentiles. And that's why they wanted to stone him. And what he was in effect saying is you need to repent of your hatred of Gentiles. And he was willing to poke the bear. And some, look, some people listened, some people didn't. He did the same thing in Athens. 
He stood up. He tried to build bridges. He said, I can see that you're very religious. You're trying to cover all your bases. You've even got an idol to the unknown God. But let me tell you about the real God. He doesn't live in temples. He, he doesn't need food or, or anything that you could serve him with. He created the entire world and he sent his son. And then he went on to explain the gospel and, and told people to repent of their idolatry. And, and that's faithful gospel preaching. And, and even if it's just you, you do a part of that, you can't shy away from telling people that they have sin, because why else did Jesus come? If Jesus didn't come to save us from our sin, then why did he come? Just to be nice to people? Like, I'm sorry, that is not a truthful. And that's also not a good message to say that Jesus just came to pat you on the back. Like that will not save people. I think a lot of people found this ad not only confusing, but also just cringe. First, for example, the idea of foot washing, and I understand that different Christian denominations have a practice of this, you know, Monday, Thursday, and all of that stuff. You're reenacting what Jesus did at the Passover. But as I understand it, even those denominations have at least some theoretical uh, boundaries. In, in some denominations, we call it fencing the table for the, uh, the, you know, the sacraments or the ordinances or whatever you call it, you know, the, the bread and wine or, or the uh, substitutes for the bread and wine. Like, I think you're supposed to say, hey, this table is open to all who confess believing in Jesus Christ. But if, if you don't, then please do not participate. We, we want you to understand the meaning of this. By the way, I think a lot of people understand that, you know, there are members and there are non-members and you sell people short by thinking uh, that if you just include everybody, then suddenly they would understand like the Christian making the ad, for example, Oh, Christians aren't mean, you know, Christians are actually very nice and they just want along to get along. They just want to get along with everybody. I think don't want to judge the motives here, but I think this ad revealed a lot about the motives of the folks making it. It seemed to me that they're the ones with the grievance against the Christians who teach hate or whoever teach hate, teaches hate and says that Jesus taught hate that seemed to be their ax to grind. And so there was audience confusion. Are you actually trying to reach the unsaved with this ad? Are you actually trying to get some measure of truth to non-believers? Or are you just trying to stick it to the Christians that you feel have taught hate? Well, there, now you've got bad art. It's not just teaching people a lie, but you've got an audience confusion and you've got a disordered purpose there, which maybe it happens when there's people with different goals in the committee and you want to please everybody, but Ultimately, the effect was confusion. And uh, as we know, God is not a God of confusion, uh, but a God of order. And Zach, you've hit on it too. Uh, it's not just saying, well, at least the ad was beautiful and showed some good stuff, even if it got the truth wrong. Like, nah, you don't get a C grade here. Uh, you don't get a you know 67% on the exam. You get a 0%. Because if you compromise truth at that level, if you ignore the reality of repentance, as by the way, the apostles proclaimed, months after Jesus washed their feet. That's what they went with when it was Pentecost time and go to the temple and heal a guy time. Just studying that for church, that's what they led with. But if you ignore that truth, then you also make the ad ugly. You make the ad bad. Uh, it would be bad to go out and wash someone's foot in this idyllic uh, ad, not just because you're arguably enabling their sin, but also because it's cringe. The person doesn't get it. Their person would be like, what? The person might call the cops. Uh, hey, uh, uh, lady outside the abortion <laughs> clinic, you know, I'm not going to judge you like those 
terrible people with their signs over there. Uh, I just want to wash your feet. <laughs> and it would be weird and creepy. And so that's why you've got this uh, little shiny picture of it happening rather than like live footage. Like we, we actually did this outside the Planned Parenthood in Spokane, Washington. <laughs> they didn't actually do it. They couldn't do it. I wonder if they thought about doing it. It would have been very interesting to see the minutes from those meetings. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, the story is ugly and bad, ultimately, by saying God is not actually truthful. And so it's uh, implicitly an accusation against God by ignoring truth. These stories also ignore beauty and goodness. And it's not just an ad of the week that's sort of the outrage du jour. I think there are some fantastical novels, even by well-meaning Christian creators, that want to show you beauty. They want to show you goodness, but they ignore truth. And that makes things really awkward when it comes time to review these stories at Lorehaven. But we are looking for stories that show all three because it's clear that the person doesn't have a chip on their shoulder about other Christians and actually does want to reveal or reflect Jesus Christ in their story. That's the kind of stories we want to see. Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more of those than we're seeing the cringe stuff. So we get to look for those stories that value biblical truth, not at the expense of beauty and not at the expense of goodness. Uh, but that honor then the Holy Spirit, you know, stories that uh, honor God's role as a beautiful creator, uh, stories that honor Jesus Christ and his holiness and goodness, uh, and stories that honor the revealed word of God, the true doctrine that we are called to uphold as an act of love for other people. Uh, and as an example, read from Second Timothy, especially uh, chapter 3, 14 through chapter 4, verse 5, about why we proclaim truth. Uh, scripture is living and active and sharper than a sword and all that good stuff and do teach the word and an author is not a pastor or a preacher but an author is a mentor and every christian is called to that journey of discipleship and stories are part of that journey and so it's disappointing then that this ad with such resources and such a platform just messed it up uh, so spectacularly. And maybe we could pray for any faithful Christians in that group. Maybe they get it right next year, but they should definitely start by, uh, like the, uh, the pastor from Ireland said, not just he gets us, but he saves us. Now that doesn't tell the whole story. Saves us from what? From whom? Well, from our deadness and transgressions and sins, you know, Ephesians 2.10, you know, uh, okay, you can get to that when you go to the website, you know, or, or start your reading plan, but at least start with that most crucial purpose that Jesus had, which is the very reason why he washed feet, not just to be nice to the neighbors, but to demonstrate to his apostles with one notable exception, I'm here to save you. Without me, you cannot be saved. It's either me or nothing. One last thing I want to say about this whole controversy is I'd love that someone created something in a response to this. That's the uh, best possible this, solution. This pastor, Jamie Bambrick, which we'll, we'll link to that again. I, I think we got to celebrate creators, not just amplify all the critique and that, that could include me. That can include Steven. We want to amplify people who are creating things uh, because th this is uh this kind of goes back to our first point of, we can have a lot of truth and you know, uh, and a lot of goodness even, but we, we need more beauty sometimes. And so we do want to celebrate good stories. We do want to celebrate good art that has all these elements because, man, you know, just, just a little bit of all three of those was in this ad. It was such a simple thing he made and it was so powerful. And I love that, you know, he, he wasn't afraid to peel back the sins of any particular political group. He was willing to, to show the truth about everyone. 
And in, in a very simple way, in a very simple aesthetic, it was very beautiful. So, and I also love that he gave this away. He said, look, if you want to do something else with this or take this idea in this format, run with it. He didn't even monetize this. You know, it, it was, there was a lot of goodness to it as well. And, and if you read his account on Twitter, which I can try to link to, you know, he, he just wanted to make something to express what he was feeling. Uh, and and try to do something better. And I, I think that's what we all got to do, or at least encourage and others, let's create good stories. Amen. I think that this uh, ad that he put together kind of counts then as the test footage. Uh, refining the approach and making it even more beautiful would be amazing. Get those people, whether they're featured in the ad, the still shots that he found, and have them interviewed, you know, clip their interviews or put them on screen, use that as part of it and strive for your accuracy too. Uh, a few people said, for example, uh, that the lady who supposedly was a former witch wasn't really Kat, Kat Von Kat D. Von D. Yeah. yeah, she wasn't. It, it was, it was an aesthetic, but it, it's kind of a myth, you know, cause she dressed like one, like she looks like one. So <laughs> you should have thrown her, should have thrown her in the water and see if she sank, you know, with the <laughs> counterweight with the duck and all of that, uh, just to make absolutely sure. But uh, in that case, it's, it's still Jesus saves, you know, the testimony is no less spectacular even if you are saved from a uh, potential future being in the biker gang in the terrible third world country, you know, and killing people, Jesus saves people before that even becomes a potential timeline. And so all glory goes to him, the source of all goodness, beauty, and truth. Yeah, I, I want to get that ad in the, uh, you know, with the disclaimer, though, of course, uh, in the show notes for this episode. It's a great way to then show the best kind of Christian alternative rather than just cursing the darkness. You instead light a candle and see what happens. Well, to you, our listener, we would love to know, have you benefited from stories that valued beauty, goodness, and truth, all three of them together? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. Let us know what story you can think of that has all three of these elements. You can also comment on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the show notes page at lorehaven.com. So send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. And speaking of ritual cleanliness and loving your neighbors, next on Fantastical Truth, hand washing, social distancing, fired employees, air transmission. Four long years ago, the 195 nations lived together in disharmony. Then everything changed when the COVID-19 virus attacked. How did lockdowns change culture and how did our reality's upheaval affect our enjoyment of fictional worlds? Well, we hope you'll go out and love your neighbor after listening to this episode. We hope that that inspires you not just to think about doing it in theory, but to actually put that word into practice and go out and show Christ to your neighbors, but not as your neighbors define it, not as the bad Christians define it, not as some of the feelings that we have may define it, but as scripture defines it. Your neighbors are made in Christ's image and therefore they need beauty, goodness, and truth, not in isolation, but in the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just get us. He saves us, and we continue then to seek and find His fantastical truth.